So we're continuing our series in the book of Ezra. Our chapter of focus today is Ezra 4. So if you turn with me there, I will read our text, I will pray, and then we will seek what the Lord has for us this evening. Ezra 4, 1 through 24. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Jerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel... Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Methredath, and Tabiel, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Aznapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send a greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the wall uh, foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to, be, to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer 
to Rahum the commander, and Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria, and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me, and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray. Lord, as we examine your word and consider it for what it means for us today, help us to have minds and hearts ready to receive what your word impresses upon us. Help us to understand why this is written and utilized thousands of years after it was written down. Lord, we thank you that you are preparing us for the work that you have for us. Lord, help us rely upon your power and your spirit to do your work in the world. We seek your guidance, we seek your mercy, and we seek your power. In your name we pray. Amen. So our series on Ezra is called Going Up. And in this series, we we are understanding that the return of the exiles into the land of of really Judah and their commission to to build a house for God. That's what controls the, the, the beginning. That's the action at the beginning. Cyrus's decree. But we're also seeing that in redemptive history, the the history of God's people, that this this building or rebuilding of the temple is something that we somewhat participate in, in the sense of Jesus came and uh, is the new temple. And so those that are going to be built up in him as the new temple, we are in Christ. Christ is the new temple. We are the new temple as well. That those in Christ need to hear the gospel and trust in him to be built up into this new temple. And so this, this whole series of, of focusing on the, the temple is something that we can understand that it is our, our work today. It is God's work in the world to, to build the temple in Christ. Build the church. And so... We never have to worry about God's work 
ceasing. We, we can most assuredly say that it will absolutely not cease. There's no risk of God failing ever. This is His world and His work of saving grace and the redemption of His people through Christ will be accomplished. Psalm 115.3 declares, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. If God says it, He will do it. All over the Bible, God's faithfulness is shown to be true. But when it comes to the faithfulness of His people, that's another story and it's a bit of a mix. There are occasions where the people of God, by God's Spirit, stand strong like David in his triumphs, but we know for every slain Goliath, there is also great failure. However, when Christ came, he wore faithfulness like a crown. As Paul says in Philippians, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And through this faithfulness, Paul continues, there Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So to those who trust in Christ, those are sweet and rich words. Jesus is Lord. We know he will never falter, but he will always be faithful in his promise, always faithful to do his will. But there's a question that's before us. It's not a question concerning the work of God because he doesn't fail. Christ says that he will build his church. Instead, it's a question posed to us, and it is this. Will we be found faithful in following his will? He has given us His Spirit. He has given us His Word. He has given us salvation in His name. He has commanded us to live for Him and to proclaim Him to the ends of the earth. Will we be found faithful to follow His command? Will we cease the work that God has given us to do? It's a sobering thought wrestling with the possibility of failure. But we are going to let this question linger before us because at the end of this chapter, if you remember, the work of the people of God ceases. And that's a very sad thing. In chapter 5, it resumes, but you'll have to come back next week for that positive Resolution, tonight, we will be left with a serious and prodding question. Will we cease to work when opposition arises? Will we cease when the fear is real, when people intimidate us? Now, God, God preps us for the opposition that we will encounter, and he doesn't, he doesn't wish that we would fail. Jesus prepped his disciples this way. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so Ezra 4 preps us in the same manner. 
by showing us that the adversaries faced by the returning exiles are similar to what we encounter. We get to see the methods of their adversaries and the real risks they were in because we face the same risks. We will get a peek into the minds of the adversaries, and in doing so, hopefully it will help us to take the surprise out of those dangers that we face. And so here are the ways of the adversary. Delusion, intimidation, and suppression. Delusion, intimidation, and suppression. We'll take each in turn and consider the risks that we face. And we can appreciate the insight because the calling of the Christian life is not to barricade ourselves to the world so that the world can only approach us from a certain direction in a certain way, but we are to operate in the world, in the open air of society with all these levels of engagement. So we must faithfully consider what it looks like to live faithfully to Christ in our gathering, in our beliefs, in our partnerships, in our submission to authority, and whatever else comes in our engagement with the world. So, let us turn to the first one. The first actors that we encounter in this text are adversaries. So, if you turn to verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and, and Benjamin heard that they returned the return exiles were building a temple to the Lord. So this is a shift from the focus on what the exiles are doing, and this is a turning to the attention of what the adversaries are doing, and that's why it's shaping the, the whole chapter of this text. And the first encounter is, again, the possibility of dilution or losing distinction. It's having the holy become common. They are adversaries. And this is what they do. They come to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses, and they say, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, if we didn't have the designation that these were adversaries, it would actually seem pretty positive what they're offering. And even if we look in the decree itself, which is chapter 1, let's look at the decree. So Cyrus, king of Persia, says this. This is verse 2. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is, at who is in Jerusalem. And this is, this is an interesting part here. And let every, each survivor, to whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So it seems by nature of the decree, help is actually a good thing. So why is it that we are told that these are adversaries? Well, if you look at 
how they respond, how Zerubbabel responds. Verse 3, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So there's an obvious and emphatic no (laughs) to the help offered. And the way that we need to get at this is to, to see the speech of the help. Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. On the surface, that looks positive. But the context of where they're from and who organized them is important. We don't have to turn there now, but when the king of Assyria populated this, this group, the Samaria, the land of Samaria and the surrounding area, it was uh, by way of organizing them in such a way that the gods of the land were all similar. And so you can even read in 2 Kings 17 where a priest of the law of God of the land, which presumably would be Israel, was brought into this people to tell them the law of the God of this land. But it's not as though this made any difference to their lives. But it was syncretism. It was bringing in another God in the midst of other gods with them. And so having that as the backdrop, you can see how this offer of we worship your God as you do is actually saying something very, very, very significant statement. That if the people of Israel were to associate with this people who say that they worship the same God, it would to make make Yahweh a common, ordinary God. So, no matter what, what motivated them, to, to offer this help, whether it's, whether it's malicious. It doesn't have to be malicious. They could have genuinely wanted to help the people of Israel returning. I mean, there are people who abhor Christianity, that, that look at refugees, those displaced, or immigrants coming into our country with compassion, and they, they want to seek their good, but they don't have to show that they love Christ to do so. But whether it's malicious or whether it's, we can call it compassion of the people of the land, that doesn't matter. What they stand for and how they worship stands against the worship of Yahweh. And it's a carryover from the worship from chapter 3 into chapter 4. And so it was right to deny their help. It was right to say that you have no part, you have nothing to do with us in the building 
of our God, God's house. So where is the danger? Delusion brings illusion. It doesn't so much make the work stop, but it rather removes its meaning. Outwardly, it looks like good work with tangible uh, metrics of progress. They, they could have built the temple together, or we could even see in our day a, a formed church, a, a gathering of people. And we could say, look at it, we did something. But when the quality in the dilution, when the meaning is lost, what is it that will stand against God's holy examination of it? God might say, sure, you, you built a temple for me, but at what cost? At the cost of my name. Now, to the world, Yahweh, the only true God, who is the creator of heaven and earth, is only one entity among the gods. How will you ever convince them otherwise? How, how will you ever recover a true testimony to my name and work in the world? So what that shows us is that when we unite in a spiritual purpose with the world, we cease participating in the work of God and we ultimately sever ourselves from Christ. So the reason that we cannot condone a peaceable, pluralistic society where all religious faiths coexist is because we'd be overstepping the bounds that Christ has laid. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoever does not enter by the door is a thief and a robber. I am the door. There is no way around the exclusivity of Christ and Christ alone. When the world asks us with honest concerns of spiritual peace or even malicious ones, we must say no. All are called to serve and love Christ. If I were to speak any other way, it would be to deny Him. I must warn you any way that I can that you are under judgment for failing to do it. The grace of God through Christ is free to you if you turn to Him, but He will never be an option among many. He is the one and only. There is no other way to really hear and listen to Christ. So we cannot align ourselves with the world in this way. It would be as if we shared a booth at Cream of Wheaton with the Theosophical Society. What would that do to the name of Christ? If we celebrate sin and sensuality, how is that different than letting the world build God's house with us? So the people... Zerubbabel and company, understood that this type of partnership would degrade the name of God. And so we must ask ourselves, will we cease the true work in the dilution that the adversaries approach with? We must ask that question. And we shouldn't be surprised to encounter it. The second level is intimidation. The first one was dilution. The second is intimidation. When the lines of distinction are drawn, so there is clear division, one response, which is the one of our text, is a response of aggression. So here we should not be surprised either. So verse 4, 
So after the rejection, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In an honor-shame culture, I would expect that this was in response to the perceived dishonor. After all, this offer could have been genuine in manner. It could have been made with sincere earnestness to help establish a previously exiled people. A passionate helper who is humiliated can become a passionate adversary. And no matter where you are politically, if we as Americans witnessed President Biden reach out for a handshake with Canadian President Justin Trudeau, but instead of Trudeau giving a handshake in return, he slapped President Biden across the face, we'd be aghast. We'd throw out all our our maple syrup and Canadian bacon. It's, It's not really bacon anyway, so it wouldn't be much of a loss. Uh, But if we were to witness such a thing, the impact of the humiliation would be a self-evident call to action. This gets us into the headspace of the people of the land, and it, it helps us guard against the idea that the returning exiles are easily intimidated. The people of the land wanted to make life miserable for those returning and rebuilding by making them afraid to rebuild and by frustrating their work through the bribery of counselors. You know, I I can't really answer this, I just assume this, but before the internet, when you moved to a new place, how did you find out where the nearest grocery store was? Or where the nearest hardware store was? You had to ask your neighbors, right? Those who knew the land, those who were already understanding about how these livelihood decisions and and ways of of finding out the location of the land. You had to ask your neighbors. So you can see how effective it could be if your neighbors determined to give you wrong information at every turn. A variety of tactics could be employed to intimidate and frustrate. Perhaps the people of God encountered price gouging for goods so that they could only buy a portion of the material. At a time. Perhaps the people of God were intentionally targeted on trade routes by bands of thieves. There are any numbers of ways to disrupt the normal patterns of living. And we we don't have the methods that they used. It's simply stated that they discouraged them and intimidated them, striking fear in them. And while we lack these finer details... It actually exposes what's in the heart of the adversaries. They resorted to threats and bribery. I don't know about you, but I don't really have a line item in my budget for making another person's life miserable. That's a serious investment. And what's hard to deal with in this text is is that it worked. The people ceased. They were fearful They were intimidated. It made the temple work stop. And look how much or how long it lasted at the end of verse 5. 
all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So in the first instance, when dilution was the, the, the way of the adversary, they appealed to the decree of Cyrus. But now when they face the adversaries of the land in a hostile manner, I don't know why they didn't appeal to the decree in the time of Cyrus. But it seems that these adversaries were successful to freeze the people of God through the intimidation. So they forgot that they had a right from Cyrus to build. And it continued all the way to Darius. And that's a, that's a couple decades. They ceased the work. Where might discouragement come to make us afraid? One of the most effective ways the world has discouraged Christians is to make Christian belief look stupid. That way is so effective that it prevents us from doing something so simple. It prevents us from opening our mouths. How is it that we are so easily intimidated? Paul goes to great lengths to get us to embrace the the foolishness, because it's not really foolishness, it's God's, God's work of the gospel. And Christ, with all seriousness and and without hesitation, he he looks at the Pharisees dead in the eyes and he says this, Before Abraham was, I am. In any context of our world, understanding the nature of history, that's a bizarre statement. And yet, Christ made it, and it was true. And the Pharisees thought he was out of his mind. Jesus' own mother and brothers thought he was out of his mind. But we believe Christ. Yet, for some reason, we hesitate to declare the same in fear. Because we think others will think that we are stupid. Now, will this intimidation make us cease the work? Sadly, it does the people of God in chapter 4. But we must answer that. You and I must answer as individuals and also together as college church. Will intimidation make us cease? Finally, let's look at the the third level of engagement, suppression, dilution, intimidation, and suppression. So the last way the adversaries work is in initiating the suppression of the governing authority. This is actually the the longest part of the text, and so we're not going to read it all again, but we are going to look at how the the text seems to tell us that there were multiple letters sent. This was a thing over time that they tried to accomplish in getting the, 
the ruler of Persia, whoever it was, to strong arm the people of God so that they cease. So in verse 6 it says, In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And if you remember, Esther is dealing with the time of Ahasuerus. But then also, which Artaxerxes comes after, in the days of Artaxerxes, a triad here, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabiel, with the associates, wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic, the formal governing language, and translated. That would be a, a second letter. And then another group writes a letter in verse 8. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. So it lists them. I'm not going to talk about the preamble. Um, but essentially, this is what they're saying. It says, the Jews are rebuilding. If they're allowed to build, they won't pay their tributes. They won't pay their taxes. Look for yourself in the accounts of their history and see how they have been rebellious and wicked. And Artaxerxes looks at the records and he responds, you're absolutely right. They must be stopped and quickly. So the people of the land reached out to the overarching authority of the Persian Empire multiple times to enforce the stoppage of construction. And they did so by saying the Jews would be enemies of the empire. And again, it worked for a time. So Nehemiah's story seems to pick up right where this letter uh, leaves, at least the time of Artaxerxes. So if you want to read about that later for further reflection, go for that. But how disheartening this, this letter from Artaxerxes, this stoppage of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem would have been as it was heard for the first time. The weight of such authority came with the strength of the Persian Empire, and that's no hollow threat. To be a Jew in the land at that time, it must have been so strange. King David and his mighty men destroyed the enemies of Israel. No one could push Israel around or enforce anything upon them, but now a Persian king has authority on the land that God has given to us. A land that he has brought us back into. How is this better than exile? We can imagine the Jews working through all of those questions because it was so backward. And the description of the Jews was also backwards. The adversaries argued that the Jews were rebellious and would not pay their taxes. It was a a moral argument with economic repercussions. And the letter in response from Artaxerxes agreed. Rebelliousness and sedition is what they say characterized the history of the Jews. The world convinced itself that God's work in the world was rebellious and wicked. And it should stop. This extension to the authority of the ruling empire is the farthest the adversaries could go 
And they went there. And again, it was effective. Verse 23. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. If you're counting, out of the three ways considered in this chapter, two ways seem to be successful here. So at this level of suppression, we must ask ourselves, when Christianity is outlawed in the land in which we live, will we cease the work? Publicly preaching the gospel is even now being characterized as hate speech. When the majority of authorities agree with that, what's to stop the enforcement against it being described and labeled and characterized as hate speech? And there are subtle movements like this all over. I can imagine you've seen this before, because I think I've seen it in multiple places. When Christians are grilled or examined by politicians for federal or state appointments, they're asked an examination of their beliefs like this. Do you, as a Christian, believe that Jews, Muslims, and those of other faiths or those without faith go to hell when they die? The Christian, the biblical Christian, should obviously answer in the affirmative, because that's what the Bible teaches. But the question, questioner asks the Christian this to argue that the Christian would not serve in the public's best interest because of their Christian convictions. They are trying to show that the Christian would not give equal space for all those who are in the nation. So basically, they, they are trying to make the claim that Christians make poor public servants. Others claim that Christians make poor teachers. Christians make poor jurors. Christians are bigots. Christians are motivated by hate. We don't have to look hard to find these arguments out there. So when the government says that we must cease the work, question is before us. Will we cease? The comfort is that Christ faced all that we ever could, and he prevailed. We could look at the Gospels and even just use these dilution or intimidation or suppression and walk through Christ's engagement with the world. And that would be good for us to do. But perhaps a greater comfort to us is is where we were at the beginning in Philippians in the introduction to this. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the comfort that we have is in the declaration that Jesus is Lord. And we can hold on to that truth throughout all of the ways of our adversaries. We see this play out with Peter and John as they were told to be silent along with the apostles. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. And so the Lord's decree trumps any man's. Before we close, just want to offer quick practical responses. To fight against the delusion we face, let us make sure that we let God's word provide the lines of distinction and not depart from it. To fight against intimidation, let us embrace the foolishness of the gospel. The salvation offered to all through Christ is a strange thing and always has been, but that makes it no less true. For us to declare to the world. It is the message of eternal life with God. And there is no other way by which men are saved except through Jesus. But how are others meant to hear if we don't speak? And so we must fight the intimidation. And to fight against the oppression. Let us tune our ears to hear from the highest authority. Who is Jesus. And as Lord over all things, he declared to us, go and make disciples of all nations. Still, the question that we have to wrestle is that when opposition arises, when adversaries are at work in all of these levels, will we cease to work? God's work will never fail. But will we cease the work that he has given us? Let us pray. Lord, we cannot do things in our own power. We are weak men and women. But, Lord, we trust in you. We trust that your word is true, that your promises are true, that we will live with you forever. We thank you that we were adversaries. We were enemies of you. But you called us to yourself. It's not because we are better than other people, but it's because you have called us to be your people. O Lord, give us the strength and the desire and the heart and the passion to be faithful to the work that you have prepared for us. Let us not cease in the face of opposition. In your name we pray. Amen.